Well, we have all seen kids that you could call spoiled brats, and I suppose those of us who are parents are trying to make sure we don't raise those kids. Um, You know what a spoiled brat is. It's a kid who wants everything and appreciates nothing. It's a kid who has an attitude who's selfish and rude. It's a kid that runs the whole family. And when we see this, we know that it's not good. It's just not good. Um, But in our walk with God, there's a sense in which we can be a little bit like that. We want what we want, and if we're not careful, we want it now. And if God doesn't act the way we expect him to act, then we get out of sorts. And and we begin to sort of struggle with our walk with God and our relationship with God because he's supposed to do what we want after all, right? And so there's a, a sense in which we can act a bit like a spoiled brat. So when we think about this and, and when we think about prayer, we've been talking about prayer the last few weeks as we worked our way through, through the model prayer or through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Um, what should we pray about? What, what should our prayers be like? Um, in what ways are we demanding of God something and in what ways should we be willing to submit to God and, and, and to, to say to Him, I, I want ultimately what, what you want. Um, well, in this particular passage of Scripture, this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching to, to uh, the crowds of people who are gathered around, and, and he says to his disciples, this is what it means to truly be my follower. And, and this is a section that he taught, uh, again, about prayer. Let's look at Matthew 6. We'll begin in verse 9, but our focus this morning will be on verse 10. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here as we look at verse 10, Jesus teaches his followers that they should pray your kingdom come. Well, first, what is the kingdom of God? Let's spend a little bit of time thinking about that. We we can say clearly as we reflect on this passage that when you pray... You ought to seek God's will. When you pray, you ought to seek God's will. I I think this passage clearly teaches that. So so let's think a little bit about what it means to talk about the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom of God is his rule over his people, his redemptive rule over his own people. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's not a location as much as it is his authority in the lives of his people. Now, if you'll remember, uh, the Old Testament people of God were looking forward to a Messiah. They were looking forward to to a Messiah who would come and who would establish the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came, uh, this is is number three in your outline, when Jesus came, the kingdom of God came breaking into the present age. The kingdom of God came breaking into the present age. So you had this this time period where the the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But when Jesus came, the the kingdom of God came breaking into the, the, the present age. This is something to think about. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, what was happening at this point in Jesus' ministry? Jesus was doing all kinds of miracles. Dead people were being raised to life. Miracles were were being done. People were being healed. Demons were being cast out. There were all sorts of incredible and amazing manifestations of God's power at work through Jesus and his disciples. What Jesus is saying here 
is this is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. One day, you're going to experience the kingdom in all its fullness, but this is a picture, this is a glimpse of what it's like. And so, we see Jesus casting out demons. It's evidence that the kingdom of God was breaking into the present age. Fourth, the kingdom of God is made known through gospel ministry in the church. The kingdom is made known through gospel ministry in the church. Let's take a look at a a couple of uh, other passages in Matthew that will help us as we think about this point. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is talking to Peter. At this point, Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. In other words, you're the one sent from God. You're the Messiah. And then this is what Jesus says to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So what did Jesus say here to Peter? He said to Peter, Listen, I am going to build a church, and the church is going to have the keys of the kingdom of God. So, so who holds the, the keys of the kingdom of God? Well, or, or the kingdom of heaven? It's the church that, that holds those. And he says, I'm going I'm to build my church, Peter, upon this rock. And there's a sense in which God used Peter in a great way to, to build the early church. But, but even more powerfully, it was the message that Peter preached. It was the gospel. And that, uh, I believe, is the rock upon which the church was built. The gospel message that in Christ we could be saved. And, and lives change. But notice the church has the keys to the kingdom. This is interesting to think about. We'll, we'll get a little more understanding of this passage as we move further in the book of Matthew, as we look at Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two Or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that is, as an unbeliever. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if you two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, these verses are often quoted out of context and thrown around in all sorts of ways. But what the Bible is talking about here is is church discipline. And in the context of church discipline, it would work something like this. And and we'll we'll see how this connects back to the kingdom of God in just a moment. But let's suppose that that I do something that's wrong. And you come to me as a brother in Christ and you call me on it. You say, hey, Lonnie, this isn't okay. And if I say, you know what, you're right, I was wrong, and I, and I make it right, then everything's done, it's good. But suppose I say, you know what, you can forget that, and I, and I get an attitude with you. Then you have a right or perhaps a responsibility, depending on the situation, to bring a brother with you and to come to me again and to say, hey, Lonnie, this, this is not right, and I, I'm bringing a brother with me to, to hear what you have to say. And then if I respond and I turn and I say, you're right, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have been that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this right, then, then we let it go. It's, it's all good. That's the, way it, that's the way you hope this pro- process would work. But if I still won't make things right, then 
it goes before the church, uh, the church, the, the gathered church, and the church would say, hey, Lonnie, what you did is not okay, and it, it needs to change. And if I turned and said, you know what, I'm going to change. My church family has called me to repentance. I see the hand of God in this pushing me and urging me toward repentance, and, and I want to change. But suppose that I say, no, I'll do what I want. I don't care what you say. And the church has called me to repentance, and I will not repent. Then ultimately, the church has a responsibility to remove me from membership within the church. There's a few reasons for this. For my own good. It's for the good of my own soul that that, that action might wake me up and help me to see that I'm, I'm living in sin and I'm living away from, from what God would have me do. It's also to guard the holiness of the church so that people can't say, well, First Baptist Church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. No, because here sin has to be taken seriously. We're, we're the people of God. People of God that struggle and stumble. There's a big difference between struggling and stumbling, which all of us do, and being outright rebellious. And this behavior or this action that the church would take here is for people who are publicly, flagrantly sinning, people who are causing division in the church, people who are teaching false doctrine in the church, people who are publicly sinning in a way that's very bold. And if a person will not repent and the church removes them, there's the keys of the kingdom. The church is making the declaration to that person, we do not believe that you are a believer. Why? Because your behavior proves that you are not. And the goal is not, again, for that person's harm. The goal is for that person's restoration. So when we see where two or more are gathered together, this is not just a blanket statement about two or, two or more people gathered together, God's in their midst. God is always in our midst. Whether it's just me and him, he's right there with me. If it's just you and him, he's right there with me. What this... Scripture is teaching us is that when the church gathers to follow his word regarding church discipline, that he's there in a special way. And that what the church does in that regard has kingdom impact, has heavenly impact. The hope in all of this passage is that a person is restored and repents and changes and gets back right in the relationship with the Lord or that the person truly comes to know Jesus and is saved. That's the hope here. And so that's the sense in which the church preaches the gospel message. That's the message of how you enter into the kingdom. And the church has responsibility and authority regarding the kingdom here on earth. So it could be said, um, as we think about this new administration, all sorts of appointments are being made. One of the appointments that are being made are, are ambassadorships to various countries because an ambassador would go to, to this country or to that country and would represent the interests of our government in that country. Well, Scripture makes it clear that those of us who know Jesus are ambassadors for Christ. But Scripture also makes it clear that the embassy where those ambassadors gather together is the church. So the church, in many ways, is an embassy for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God. It's the place where if people want to know what the kingdom of God is about, you, you come to the church. You, you learn and you see people living in community together. It's a picture of what heaven will be like, of course, without all of the sin and all of the trouble and difficulty. Now, um, fourth, the kingdom of God won't be fully realized or consummated until Christ's return. So, so there's a sense in which the kingdom is here now, but it's not completely here. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the scriptures say, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Here, what is this scripture talking about? A time where the kingdom of the world ceases to be. And now Christ reigns in his righteousness, and the kingdom is fully realized. And that is, that's what we look forward to. So Jesus promises that he's going to return, and he's going to establish the kingdom of God in all its fullness. Revelation 22.20, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And when he does, he will establish the kingdom. So let's draw some conclusions about the kingdom of God. This is the way one commentator said it. So God's kingdom is not a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. And he continued, so the kingdom of God is the realm of grace. It's where the damage done to us by sin is repaired. And the gospel of grace proves to be what the kingdom is all about. So how do you become a part of the kingdom of of heaven? You, You believe in Jesus. You turn to him and you experience his grace. And do you remember when you were a kid and your mom was baking chocolate chip cookies and, and maybe you might say to her, hey, can I, can I eat some of the dough or, or something like that? And you, you get a little bit of the dough and, and then you're, you're waiting. You can't wait for that batch of cookies to be done because you're going to have a glass of milk and you're going to have some chocolate chip cookies warm right out of the oven. Now, the dough was good, but what you're really waiting for is that batch to be finished. And this is kind of what the kingdom of God is like. We get, we get tastes of what the kingdom is like when we turn to Jesus and we know his peace, when we experience the, the way that he transforms our hearts, when, we, when he gives us strength in the midst of hard times, we get taste of what the kingdom will be like. We get a, a piece of the dough. But we look forward to the day that the batch is done and it's all good. That, that's what we look forward to. So Jesus teaches his followers that we should long for God's righteous reign We should long for Christ's return when he will establish his righteous rule fully in our world. In John 14, 30, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So we live in a kind of overlap. We live in a time where Satan is the ruler of the world. There's sin, there's brokenness, there's hardship. But Jesus has come. And so in that sense, when Jesus came, the kingdom of God began. And so we live in this period of overlap, but a day is coming where this overlap is finished and everything is fulfilled and and, and God reigns completely. So now in this overlap, we get a taste of, of what the kingdom is like. As theologians have put it, we live in the already of the kingdom where Jesus is changing lives, where Jesus is transforming us. But we also live in the not yet where things aren't completely changed or transformed and they're far from it. And so we continue to look forward. So what does this mean regarding prayer? Well, in prayer, Jesus' disciples are to pray that God will rule and reign here and now. That he'll extend his rule and reign here on earth. And this ought to guide the way that disciples pray for themselves and the way that disciples pray for others. Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, but also your will be done. Now, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would soon face the cross. He was praying to God, and he uses the very words that he taught his disciples to use in Matthew 26, 42. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross was just around the corner, and he said, My father, if this cannot pass 
unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus modeled the very, the very thing that, that he called us to do. He lived it out. In the face of the cross, he said, God, if this can be taken, take it. But your will be done. I, I don't want to become sin in a sense. I don't want to face the horror of becoming sin and experiencing all that that will mean. But God, I want your will to be done. So prayer isn't me. And we talked about this a bit last week, trying to make God do what I want. It's just not that. It's me submitting to God, to his will. Romans 12, 2 reminds us that God's will is perfect. And so even more than our own desires, we seek his will when we pray. We seek his will. We seek his glory. Sometimes it means that we're going to face some awful tough times. In Jesus' life, what did it mean? It meant he was going to face death. It meant he would die on the cross. And sometimes when we walk with God faithfully, we're going to walk through some very dark paths. But we trust him in those times. So in prayer, we ought to have an attitude of submission, not one of demanding. Now, uh, a few weeks back, my, my kiddos were asking me about signs, a stop sign. Well, that means you stop. And, and, and they ask about a yield sign. And so it's kind of interesting trying to explain a yield sign to a three-year-old. But, but I explained, if, if you see a yield sign, then you wait and make sure that no one else is coming, and, and then you go and and in a sense, prayer is a lot like saying to God, I'm, I'm yielding to you. God, I, I, I'm seeking you for this or I'm seeking you for that. I want this or that, but God, I'm yielding for you. You, you have your way and, I, and I'm going to submit to that. God, I'm going I'm I'm to wait for you. I'm going to trust you in the midst of all that's going on. Now, this discussion leaves some questions for us. Isn't God sovereign? Well, if God is sovereign then why even pray? If, if God's going to accomplish his will, then why even pray? And, and commenting on this passage, one author said it like this, it is absolutely clear from scripture that God is sovereign and yet not only allows, but commands that man exercise his own volition in certain areas. If man were not able to make his own choices, then God's commands would be futile and meaningless and his punishments cruel and unjust. If God did not act in response to prayer, then Jesus' teaching about prayer would be futile and meaningless. Our responsibility is not to solve the dilemma, but to believe and act on God's truths, whether some of them seem to conflict to us or not. To compromise one of God's truths in an effort to defend another is the stuff of heresy. We are to accept every part of every truth in God's word, leaving the resolution of any seeming conflicts to him. Attempting on a human level to resolve all apparent conflicts in Scripture is an act of arrogance and an attack on the truth and intent of God's revelation. And he continued, to pray for God's will to be done on earth is to rebel against the idea heard today even among evangelicals that virtually every wicked, corrupt thing that we do or that is done to us is somehow God's holy will and should be accepted from his hand with thanksgiving. Nothing wicked or sinful comes from the hand of God, but only from the hand of Satan. To pray for righteousness is to pray against wickedness. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for Satan's will to be undone. And so we can't answer all of the questions about, well, God is sovereign and yet he tells me to pray. We, we can't figure all that out. Brothers and sisters, don't try. Just obey. 
We, we, we leave that. He, he, his ways are higher than our ways. His thinking is higher than our thinking. We leave it to him. He calls us to pray, and he, he promises that he'll act, and so we should pray, not trying to, to connect all the dots, but, but to walk by faith. Notice that he says to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So the disciples should pray that here on earth, God's will will be done. Now, obviously, to pray that means that sometimes God's will isn't done in, in one sense. So we ought to pray that believers, those of us who know Jesus, would obey God. You see, that's how his kingdom comes and his will is done here. It says we obey him. So we ought to pray that, that we will obey God, that we'll submit to God, that we'll live lives that reveal the king. We ought to pray that people might be saved, that, that new hearts would come under God's righteous rule. The Bible is indeed very clear. There's only one way to enter into the kingdom of God, and that is to bow before the king. It's to bow before the king. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So what does this scripture mean? It means that some people think they're a part of the kingdom of God, and they're really not. Some people believe that, that, that they belong to God, but they don't. He says, they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, they're going to claim to know me, but they really don't. How can a person know if they're a part of the kingdom of God? Well, he says it here. It's the one who does the will of his father. Well, what is the will of God? Well, first, his will is that you repent and you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. In fact, in Matthew four seventeen, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So do you want to become a part of the kingdom of God? Then you have to repent. You have to say, okay, I'm going this way. I'm living life my own way. To repent means to say, I'm not doing that anymore. God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk with you. I am turning toward you. So how do you become a part of the kingdom of heaven? You repent and you call out to Jesus for forgiveness. You put your trust and your belief in him. And the Bible says that when you do that, God saves you. Now, sometimes in life we think, well, I, I know about Jesus and that's probably good enough. Or we think, you know what, I, I'm a pretty decent person. I don't cheat people. I try to be nice. I try to be kind. I know I'm a part of God's kingdom. But the Bible is very clear. Unless there's been a time in your life where you've turned from your sin and put your trust and your faith in him, you are not a part of the kingdom. How do you become a part of the kingdom? You bow down to him in repentance and in faith and trust. You turn from your old way of living and you, you live for him. Now, some of you say, well, wait a minute. I was baptized when, when I was uh, a little or I went through catechism or, or something like that. And so I, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. Unless you have turned from your sin and believed in Jesus, you are not. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Unless you be born again, you have no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. So when we talk about praying for God's will to be done on earth, a huge part of that praying ought to be that people who don't know Jesus will come to know him and will become a part of the kingdom of heaven. And so after we become a part of the kingdom of heaven, there ought to be a desire to change and to grow and to become more like Jesus. If there's never been that kind of change of heart in your life, you ought to ask yourself, am I really a part of the kingdom? Because when you come to know Jesus, something changes in your heart. Doesn't mean that you're perfect. 
Obviously, none of us are. But it means there's something in your heart that isn't the same, where when you sin, you feel a heaviness and a weight. When you're doing things your own way, you know you shouldn't be there. And so you need to ask yourself, has that happened in my life? If it has not, I want you to know the word is clear. You must do the will of the Father. You must repent and believe to become a part of the kingdom. Now, Jesus told a parable to explain how incredible it is to become a part of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. What's Jesus' point in telling this parable? He says, being a part of the kingdom of God. Well, it's like a man who was out in the field and And in that field, he finds some incredible treasure. And he covers it back up. And then he goes and he takes everything that he has and he sells it so that he can get a hold of that property because that treasure is so great. And that's what what it's like to become a part of of God's kingdom, to become one of his subjects, to to know Jesus as your savior. It's, It's an incredible possibility. It's worth giving up everything for. So don't let anything hold you back. What did this man say? He said, I'll give up everything I have to get this because this is good and this is right and this matters. I think about times in your life where you've experienced some, some great joy. Maybe it, was, maybe it was winning the game or it was getting the girl and she finally said, I do. And you, you dreamed of this for, for months and months or, or even years. You know, you know, those kinds of glimpses of joy Knowing Jesus is better still. It's better than the greatest of these kinds of things that that are glimpses of great joy or happiness in our lives. Knowing him is better. We can enjoy these kinds of things. You know, we finally got the truck we were dreaming of. We can enjoy that. And there are countless others, but in reality, but also because we know that one day all things will be made right. Now, thinking about the kingdom and and what that means in our lives today, it helps us think soberly or wisely or rightly about life. So let me explain this to you. We don't live in foolish optimism. There have been all sorts of attempts all throughout history to create the utopian society. Brothers and sisters, until Christ comes, it will never happen. Post-Genesis 3, there will be no utopia until Christ comes again and makes things right. It can't happen. So we don't live in foolish optimism that we're going to usher in an age where nothing ever goes wrong, where everything's perfect. That can't happen this side of heaven. So we don't live with that foolish kind of thinking. We live in a world that will be broken until the kingdom of Christ is established. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work toward making things better. Of course we should. But we shouldn't live under the illusion that we're going to usher in utopia. Um, Now, in the life of the church, this has happened a few times. Uh, One of the movements that was really at work in the 20th century among the mainline denominations, they sort of lost preaching the gospel, telling people how they could be saved, and they moved toward a social gospel. And they said, you know what? We're We're going to create heaven on earth. We're going to love people and help them get education and feed people. All those are great things to do, but... No matter how many of those good things you do, it doesn't change the fact that every one of our hearts are broken by sin and sin and suffering still reigns. So so to move our attention from the gospel, telling people how they can know Jesus and be a part of his eternal kingdom to just preaching a social gospel is a terrible mistake. And, And yet there are countless denominations that are there. 
They've lost the gospel. Another place that you see this sort of overemphasis on uh, what will be is in prosperity preachers. These guys preach, hey, one of these, you know, God wants you to be rich. He, want, you're never, he never wants you to be sick. If you have enough faith, he's going to make you well. You're going to, God, I've heard one of them say, God wants you to drive a Rolls Royce. Now, what I want you to hear is they're taking what God is going to do one of these days, and they're trying to make it true now. But brothers and sisters, it will never be. Sickness is a part of life here. Does God heal? Can he heal? He's the great physician. Of course he can heal. Is it always his will to heal? Well, if Paul's any indication, his thorn in the side, then no, it's not always his will. We can't flesh all of that out. We pray in faith and we trust that he'll be at work. We leave it in his hands. But we can't think for a moment that God's going to give us heaven now. He'll give us a taste of heaven, but until Christ comes to establish his kingdom, it won't be like that. So we don't build God's kingdom. God does that. We live lives that strive to bless people and help people, but, but God builds his kingdom. Fourth, pray for people to be saved and to become a part of God's kingdom. Pray for people to be saved and to become a part of God's kingdom. If we want to see his rule and his reign extend, then pray that people come to know Jesus Get serious about evangelism. Pray for people by name every day. Seek to share the gospel. Fifth, pray for and commit to a local church. Pray for and commit to a local church, recognizing that the church has kingdom, authority, and responsibility. Now, some of you, and, and, and I, I, some of you think, well, hey, I'm going to be a solid Christian believer, but I'm not going to be a part of a church. I'm not going to be a member of a church because me and Jesus, we've got this, and I don't need a church you know, speaking into this, but I want you to know that's just not faithful with what Jesus said about the kingdom of God and about heaven. Study closely Matthew 16. Study closely Matthew 18, and you'll understand that that to be a faithful follower of Jesus means that you need to become a part of a church with all the warts and challenges that 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 can bring. It's the expectation that Jesus has for, for all of his followers. Maybe you've heard of William Marshall. He was called by many the greatest knight of medieval England. When he was five years old, there had been a, a coup in England, and, and his dad had been a part of that coup. And, and so uh, his dad gave him up to King Stephen as a part of a truce. So he was a war hostage. This was uh, around mid-12th century. And to give up his son was a way to pledge good faith. It was a way to guarantee the terms of, of a truce. Well, shortly after he had given his son up to King Stephen, his five-year-old boy, uh, William's dad broke the truce. And so the king said to William's father, Mr. Marshall, I am going to kill your son. And William's dad responded, "Um, well, I can always have more and finer sons. And so the king came to the place where he felt like he had to kill this boy. And so on the day that, that he was to be executed, on the way there, the boy was playfully playing with the, the guard's spear, and he jumped in a catapult, treating it as a swing. And as the, as the king watched that boy, that the boy's playfulness just played on the king's heart. And he relented. He could not kill that five-year-old boy. And he returned him to his family. And it was said that the king had a heart. The king had a heart. Now, I want you to know, God is no king without a heart. God is a king who has a heart. 
He loves his children passionately. So passionately that he gave up his own son. Allowed his own son to suffer and die that we might, that we might become a part of his kingdom. He's a good king. He's a kind king. He's a benevolent king. He's not against you. He loves you if you belong to him. So I plead with you, let's trust him, even in the ups and downs of life, even in the the, the great times, but yes, even in the darkest of days, let's hold fast that we have a king who loves us, who's with us. So when you pray, seek his will above all. He has your best interest in mind. He's a good king. So pray for your yourself and others with passion and pray that God's will would be accomplished in, in your life and the lives of others and the life of our church family. And finally today, I want to ask you, have you bowed to the king? Have you bowed to the king? It's the only way that you can be a part of God's eternal kingdom. It's to get on your knees before Jesus and say, I surrender. I want to follow you. I believe in you. Friends, if you've never become a part of the kingdom of God, I want you to know there's no more important decision that could ever be made than to respond to this amazing and incredible love and mercy and grace. Join me in prayer.